Yes. Love this worship. That's a beautiful song. There's only one line I don't like. You are in all things waiting to break through. Sounds a little bit pantheistic. More like he created all things. But you know. Just want to make sure for some of you theological nerds out there that are like, wait a minute. And for those of you watching, you know, this is a real judgmental society, so people are just waiting to judge you. So I'm just clearing JP and myself. We understand what's going on. So we might have to edit that next time we sing it. You are not in all things. You created all things, but we get it. We understand. We'll just call that artistic theological license. But we'll call that. All right, uh, I'm here to do your announcements and to do the sermon, so sorry. Uh, this week, this is a, the first of a few things this week, so don't forget. So this Wednesday, this is the first where we're going to do the co-ed. Some of, you group, some of the groups have already been meeting in the co-ed capacity, but we might mix it up and throw somebody else in there with you just to have fun. But at the very least, we're going to do uh, co-ed groups will meet this week. You'll know on Tuesday, early Tuesday afternoon, leaders will know who's matching up with who if you're not sure yet. Also, Friday is the first digital game night, so please register for that because if not at least 10 people are registered, then it's going to be a problem. So let's register for that on Friday. And then we got the deductive Bible study with me Saturday morning. Quite a few of you have registered. I appreciate that. It's still open to register. So you can, all this, you can go on the app. Go on the app and find these in the events and find these uh, events, and then you can click and register through that. We also have the Alpha Bible Study, I think, is next weekend as well, right? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's about to be on around here. So it's a lot going on. So make sure you register for that. And just check the events. Senator, this morning, Jasmine sent an email just to let all members know what's happening. So you can also... Check that email as well. And one other thing that's not in the email, because it's more directed to uh, our sister Kathy, but next Sunday is going to be a celebration of life service here for her, but it's driven by the family. So this is more the family is, 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 is leading this and doing that. So people who are coming will be connected to who they desire to be there. But for our purposes at Solid Rock, we're going to postpone just next Sunday. We're not going to go to Romans 6. We're going to do something else because we also want to celebrate the life of our sister, Kathy. And so I'm looking forward to doing that. Next Sunday, we'll give you more information this week. And so thank you for praying for the family. It has been a very heavy week. And uh, it is just the reality of the world that we live in and death is still a formidable opponent and still an enemy that is yet to be cast out. So until then, we recognize the reality and we'll talk more about that next Sunday. So I'm actually glad that me and Lou were talking about that pantheistic line in the song because that particular song was affecting me emotionally as I was thinking about Kathy. So... I'm glad that was able to find something funny in that so that I wouldn't be too emotional this morning. Let's transition to the sermon and I'll pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we are again here by your grace to proclaim your word. And by, by just default of reality, life goes on. We love, we lose, we celebrate, we hurt, we are confused, we are disappointed, we are grieved, we are hopeful, we rejoice, we sing, we pray, we laugh, we cry, and life continues to go on. 
And life goes on for us, Jesus, because you are our life. And we are grateful for the things and the people that you allow to become a part of our life, this journey, this side of, of glory. And in that hope, we look forward to and anticipate even, even more so, seeing the people that we love and respect and, and will miss again. And so, Father, I pray that this morning, this is not the morning for me to grieve. So I pray for your assistance more than usual to keep my composure so that I may preach what you have for me. Because for some people, Kathy's a name and someone that went to this church. But for me, she was my close friend. I loved her and I will miss her. And so next Sunday, Lord, give us the grace to celebrate her life. But today, give us the grace to dig into your word and to look at some of the truths that are here in the rest of Romans 5 that we can be encouraged today because for your glory and our good, you have us here still. You've left us here. We're not with you like Jason and Kathy and, and others that we've known. We're, we're still here. We're still here fighting the good fight and therefore we have to be equipped for how to live here. You have not brought us home yet where that fight is over. So because of that, Lord, may we be equipped this morning to live here and to remember who we are here for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week we were ending... I ended in the middle of chapter five, and there was a question that came in the Q&A. And the question I'm paraphrasing was essentially me saying that a lot of this is about identity, and they asked me, could I elaborate a little bit more? And I did say some things, but because it was Q&A, it's the end of the day, you know, it was time to, time to go. Not for you all, though. It was time to get out of bed and... and, and and finish your breakfast. But for us, it was time to end and do that. So I said some things. So I want to, this morning, I think what we're going to pick up in the passage allows for me to elaborate more on what I meant by identity, why I think this is all about identity. In fact, I'm going to say emphatically that the whole story of redemption is about God restoring the identity that was lost in the garden. That's the whole purpose. So there's a lot of, depending on your theology, there's a lot of different things like covenant of works and grace or dispensation of this and dispensation of that. Depending on your theological framework, I think everything centers around God actually just trying to restore the identity that was lost. And he did that by God's grace through Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at that for a moment. We're going to do a brief biblical theology of identity pivoting off of where we at in the actual passage this morning. And so we're going to answer a question, why do we need reconciliation? Why do we need that? Like we've heard a lot about it. As a matter of fact, the last message building up to where we are now is all about reconciliation. Why couldn't Jesus just die and that be it? Why do we have to have reconciliation? Why do we have to have what we theologically call an imputed righteousness where God gives us Christ's righteousness and takes our sinfulness? Why couldn't Jesus just die and then that be it? Why this need for a new identity? Why does that happen? Why is that necessary? Well, the reality is this reconciliation with God is not a new reality. Reconciliation with God is not a new reality. It's a return to an old one. See, what Jesus is doing and did and doing in our lives is returning us to the status we had with God before the fall. There was community relationship with Adam and God. 
And because of that, and we'll jump into that in just a moment, that was lost. That reconciliation, that relationship. So the reconciliation is restoring us to a relationship with God that was lost because of sin. So it's not a new reality, it's a return to an old one. So let's start with the passage and then work our way through this, as we'll see. Starting in verse 12 of Romans 5, here's what we read, and I quote, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. Now, this is all, if you're not familiar with this type of language, you probably are thinking, what in the world did he just say? What does this mean? Well, in order to understand these three verses, we're going to have to go back to the verses that these three verses are referring to. And in that, I'm going to first use that to do a brief biblical theology of identity. And then we're going to look through the verses and explain what they mean. All right, so to understand what he's saying here, you have to at least understand what happened back in Genesis. And I'm going to start with Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Right? This is sort of the origin of reconciliation, if you will. Or what I call the covenant of identity. All right, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now, I'm, I'm going to make assumptions that you know the biblical story of creation. But up to this point, until day six, you don't really see God say the same thing about any other aspect of creation. So when he gets to day six and he creates humanity, mankind, Adam, and then eventually Eve, he says, let us make man in our own image. That's identity language. Identified with God. We're going to make man in our own image. And how so? According to our likeness. This is identity language. God is saying out of everything that I've made, the one thing that's going to be like us, to have the identity like us, will be mankind. He doesn't use this language talking about other animals. He doesn't speak this way. So he makes this statement that God will speak in and create in his image. That's identity language. Then he talks about ruling over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock and the whole earth. And then the scripture tells us in 127, so God created man in his own image. This is identity language. Clearly, God decided mankind is going to have an identity like us. Now we fast forward to Genesis chapter 3, which is directly talking about what our first three verses from Romans 5, 12 to 14 are discussing. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1, says this. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit in the tree of the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Verse four, here's Satan's response. No, you will not die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman said that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. She saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. 
Then the eyes of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, we've, we mine this particular field often, but let's, let's show the point of the reality of this identity, right? So when Satan tempts Eve, he does not tempt Eve with how good the fruit is, how hungry she is. He doesn't ask her that. He asks her, what did God say? And then he contradicts what God says by saying this, you will not die. In fact, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So you see, the fundamental temptation that brought sin into the world was identity. God said, they're made in my image. They're made in my likeness, humanity, mankind. And Satan said, you're not like God yet, but you will be like God if you bite this fruit. So the very temptation is not about how hungry she is or how good the fruit looks. That's what Eve said. But what tempted Eve to do it was to be like God. This is an identity crisis. When they bite the fruit, it says their eyes are open. And they are like God, but not in a way that God had intended for their initial identity. Their understanding of right and wrong was supposed to come from him. And they had it. You can subdue the earth take care of the garden and multiply, have a family, have children and don't eat from this tree. That was right and wrong. Satan tempted them saying, you're not like God yet, but you will be. That's identity. They bite the fruit and then a loss of identity happens. In Genesis 3.15, it shifts now from the identity of Adam and Eve to a different identity, and he says this, talking to the serpent, who was Satan. God says this, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So here we have, at first, a unified identity. Humanity made in God's image, created in God's likeness, identity there. Once sin comes into place, identity is shattered. And now God acknowledges that by telling the devil that he will have offspring. There will be people that will be identified with you. They now belong to you. They, are, they have your identity to me. He's not talking about baby snakes. He's talking about people who will worship the devil people whose identity will be attached to the devil. So he makes a distinction now in identity. There's your offspring and there's her offspring, Eve. But her offspring is not plural, it's singular. The devil's offspring is plural. The proof of this is we see it right here. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So the he that the enemy, that the God is referring to is a person. And the rest of the Bible is trying to figure out who is the identity of this person. Who is this he? And it develops from there. This, this, this hidden identity slowly becomes reality throughout the Old Testament. We start to get more of it when we get to Abraham in, verse, in Genesis 12, 7, where God says, it says, The Lord appealed to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. Now, when we read that, we always think offspring is plural, but we know that, that this word offspring was not plural, but it was also singular, like Genesis 3 when he was talking to the snake, because Galatians tells us that when God was speaking of offspring or seed, he was talking about one person. So Genesis, Galatians 3.16 tells us this. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed or offspring. Those are interchangeable words. He said, he does not say, and to seeds, plural, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. So Paul is, understands and is explaining that this identity that God initially talked about, who the promise of salvation that was given to Abraham initially is in one person, that identity who is 
Jesus Christ. You see, this idea of identity goes and goes and goes, and it takes on many forms and names. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18, the last book of the, the, the Pentateuch, the, last, of the first five books of, of the Bible, Deuteronomy is the last, and, 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 and Moses is writing to the Israelites who were going to go into the land of Canaan. And he says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what is requested from the Lord your God at Oreb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see his great fire any longer so that we will not die. Then the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. In other words, they said, listen, we don't want to stand in front of this mountain and see God talk because it's fire and brimstone and lightning and thunder when we hear his voice. And God said, that's a good thing. They couldn't handle it. Off to Jack Nicholson. You can't handle this truth. So he says, it's a good thing. So he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, talking to Moses, like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command them. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. Now, people understood that this prophet was going to be uniquely different. People didn't confuse prophets like Samuel and Nathan and Jeremiah and Isaiah with the prophet. To give Israel their credit for a long time, a couple millennia, they were waiting for this prophet. Proof of that is seen in John chapter 1, where it says this beginning in verse 19. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. You see, they were looking for the prophet. Who was this identity? Because they knew that that person's identity, whoever he is, is going to change our identity in this world. So the Jews have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting to find out who this identity of this person is. As a matter of fact, proof of that point is this. In 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, this is what he says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets in the Old Testament who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he, would, when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would come. In other words, the prophets in the Old Testament who were writing down what we consider to be the prophets, Hosea, uh, J uh, Jonah, all the minor prophets, Habakkuk, uh, you know, all these, Obadiah, all the prophets, from the major to the minor, they were all trying to figure out who is this and when is this going to happen? They wanted to know the identity of the person that they're writing about because identity has been the primary means throughout the whole storyline of the Bible. When we get to John chapter 12, Jesus acknowledges what God said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Here's what Jesus says a couple of hours before he's crucified on the cross. The night before his death on the cross, here's what Jesus says to everyone that's listening and for all of us who would be reading. He says this, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then it says this. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. So John tells us that in this moment, Jesus identifies that he is the seed that is going to crush the serpent's head. And that when he is lifted up on a cross, he's going to draw all people to himself, meaning that people will believe in him because he died on the cross for their sins. And this is exactly what we believe to this moment. This idea of identity is, and I'm just giving you a light biblical theology. I'm skipping things because of time. 
This reality of identity is pervasive. And I would say is one of, if not the main theme of what God is doing. Obviously, it's his glory, right? He's glorifying himself. We see that in John as well, just before the verses I read. But one of the main themes and main threads of the Bible is that God is going to restore the identity of people because it was lost in the garden because of sinfulness, and particularly Adam's sin, by biting the fruit. Identity language is is significant in the Bible because God wants to make sure we know that's what's happening. You know why? Because that identity that God's talking about is not often our experience. You see, I'm a black man. And I understand that in our country, I'm seen as that. I've seen people relate to me based on their perspective of a black man, a big black man at that. I understand what it means to have that identity. I understand what it means to have an identity of a man because I am when I, I feel like when I am, when I've acted like one my whole life. But the identity of a Christian, of someone who was declared righteous before God, that's not my experience. It's not your experience. So that identity, we have to believe by faith. See, I don't have to believe by faith that I'm black and that I'm a man. I don't have to believe that by faith. That's sight. I can see that. You all can see that. If anybody can't see that, I don't know what to tell you. But when it comes to being good with God, even though I sin, that's an identity that's a little harder for me to see. I have to believe that by faith. And so God is constantly reminding of identity, of identity, of identity, because it takes five times for people to believe it once. Sometimes we got to hear it five times to believe it once. So you have verses like this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is one of the greatest statements of sort of, it's a theological statement, but it's a great statement to show sort of the trading places, right? This is basically going to say, God traded places with you, and you traded places with him. And here's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He made the one who did not sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made the one who did not sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is essentially God saying, okay, let's trade places. All right. I'm going to take Jesus, who lived perfectly, and I'm going to have him die on the cross and be punished for the sins of all humanity as if he lived imperfectly. So I'm going to punish him. And if you believe in Jesus, I'm going to switch your identity. So I'm going to take the perfect obedience that he has and now say, you get that. And I'm going to take the sinfulness that you have and say, well, I'm going to punish him for that. So we trade places. Our identities change to God. And the reason why this is important is because we have to have an identity that is like God and rooted in God because that's the way he created us and it was lost when Adam and Eve bit the fruit. This is why we can't just be like, oh, why can't these these people just love each other? Why can't they do what they do? Because it's not about just your actions It's who are you to God, not what do you do. Who are you to God? When God looks at you, what identity does he see? And if it's not because you have faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what your actions are. Your identity to God, it doesn't belong to him. You are the seed of the serpent. But when you have faith in Jesus, even though we sin sometimes, like we're still belong to the serpent, God says, your identity has changed to me. And so he has to keep reminding us and reminding us so that we actually believe it and then live that way. When we get to Romans 1, we get to the book of Romans, he starts off highlighting the reality of identity, right? He says this in verse 7, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. That's identity language. Let me tell you something. You will not find in the New Testament 
anything greater than identity language, talking about God's people. Identity language. All these different terms are all identity. We hear in Romans about Gentiles in Romans 1. That's an identity, Gentiles, people who are non-Jewish. We hear about Jews, people who are Jewish. We hear about circumcised. That's an identity, people who have had an action of being circumcised. We hear about uncircumcised. That's an identity. When we hear justified or we hear righteous, that's identity. That's your identity before God. God will look at you and say, not guilty when you stand before him, not because you didn't sin, but because you believed in Jesus and he traded places. We took his identity of righteousness and he took our identity of sinfulness. All sin is going to be punished. The question always is, whose identity, who's going to pay for it? You and I or Jesus? That's the way out. Reconciled is identity. There's no way around this. The restoration of our identity is a main theme in the narrative of the Bible. And when you think about how credible that is, that God became a human being so that he could identify with us on how difficult it is to be a human being and resist sin so that he could die and give us his identity of never sinning. It's incredible. I've used this analogy before. This is an analogy to make the point. But in 1997, the Chicago Bulls went 72 and 10. At that time, the greatest record in the NBA. And they won a championship ring. And most people who remember the Bulls would know that Michael Jordan was the star of the team and the star of the NBA, the most popular athlete in the world at that time. And he also had help from Scottie Pippen and John Paxson and Craig Hodges and you know, some different people, Stacey King and Bill Cartwright, who still has one of the ugliest shots in the history of the NBA. And, but there were people that you've never heard of, never heard of, that sat on that bench, that got a ring. They didn't earn it. They didn't play one minute in the, in the NBA Finals. They didn't do anything but essentially practice against Michael Jordan and them. They did nothing to earn it. But when it came time to give the Bulls their NBA championship rings, they got a ring. They, there were men on that team who got a ring, and there were other superstars in the NBA who never got a ring, who were way better in skill, worked way harder than they did, but these men have a ring. Why? Because they were with Michael Jordan. They were on his team. They were with the champ. That's the only reason why they got a ring. That's what it's like in Jesus. We can't do anything to win the game. But we believe in Jesus, so we're on the team. So because he won the championship, we get a ring. And all we get to do is practice. Off the Allen Iverson, we're talking about practice. That's it. We, do, we offer nothing to the championship, but we receive all the benefits. When that team was on the Wheaties box, Everyone who was on the team was on the Wheaties box, even though most of us couldn't identify four or five of those players. Why? We never heard of them because they don't play. But they got the same benefits in many ways as the whole team because Jordan was the champ. We get the benefits. This is why the Bible calls us co-heirs with Christ. He shares his inheritance with us because we're on his team. So the restoration of identity is a major theme in the Bible. Now to the actual verses, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin because of Adam. Remember, God told him, if you eat of this, you will surely die. This way, death spread to all people because all sinned. So sin entered the world through one man, but it says Eve bit the fruit first. 
and then gave it to Adam. So why does it say through one man, through Adam? Now, technically, you could say they were one flesh. I mean, God created Eve out of Adam. You could say they were one flesh, but that's not really what the point that he's making. The point that he's saying is that Adam was created first and was given the actual command. Eve was not. Eve didn't hear the command from God directly, but she heard it from Adam. At least that's what we believe because of her response to Satan and because she wasn't there when God gave the command. Look at Genesis 2. Beginning in verse 4, it said this, These are the records of, of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Now, beginning, picking up at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to watch it and work over, to work over and watch it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are to eat, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought it each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. I'm, I'm looking forward to asking Adam, what was he thinking when he called it a duckbill platypus or a swamp possum? I'm assuming that he, or maybe those weren't the names that he named them, but he knew we would name them those. I'm curious to know why he named certain animals. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, there was no help or found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. The Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. So you see, Adam was, never give, Adam was given the command, not Eve. But here's the catch. Adam was the representative of all humanity. When God made Adam, Adam was the first human being, but would represent all humanity. One of the proofs of this is this. When it said, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. Right, we see that happen. So God made him from dust and he made other animals from dust. He made other animals from dust. He, he just said that he formed them all out of the ground and then see what the man would call them. But he did something different. When he made Adam, he breathed into him his spirit, the breath of life into his nostrils. Notice that when he makes Eve, he doesn't breathe into Eve the same spirit. You know why? Because once he breathed into Adam that spirit, every human being would have that same breath of life within them. Because Adam was the first of many. Whatever Adam received, everyone received. It was all of us. That's why when we're born, we don't have to have anything breathed into us in the same way God did that with Adam. So Adam was mankind's representative, which meant when God was talking to Adam, he was talking to all mankind because all mankind would come from Adam. And this logic makes sense when you go to Hebrews chapter 7, but we're not going to do that right now. When God talks about, when the Hebrew, I'll just say this, the author of Hebrews makes a, a similar comparison about Mechizeldek and, the, and, and the, the, the ministry of Mechizeldek versus the Levitical priesthood. But I, we won't get into that right now. I don't want to confuse you. All right, so this command given to Adam was for Adam alone, but it was also for humanity. So when it says that Adam was the one who sinned against God, it means it literally. Adam heard the command and was told not to do it. In a similar way, I got three boys. If me and my wife go out and I leave my oldest in charge and I say, son, make sure that this, this, this doesn't happen. And he's like, okay, I got it. And I come home and, he, I, and I say, the house is a mess. I'm like, what happened? And he says, oh, such and such did this and then he did that and he did that. Like, no, 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 son. I told you not to make sure that this happened. You were responsible. So you're just as much in trouble as them because you were supposed to tell them. That's exactly what happened here. Adam 
instead of protecting his wife, he listened to his wife. So Adam is the one that sin is charged with. Not Eve. Only once, I think, I think it's only once when Timothy is making an argument about who should be in the role of elder, does he go to creation and recognize that Eve was deceived first? Other than that, the Bible considers the fault of humanity and sin on Adam. Verse 13, in fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. All right, so let's unconfuse this language. Here's what it's essentially saying. Sin came in Genesis 3. The law came in Exodus 20. So there's a long time between Genesis 3, when sin came into the world, and Exodus 20. Maybe a couple thousand years later. So the point is, is that sin was in the world before the law. And by that, it means that people didn't necessarily know what was sinful and what was not apart from their conscience and apart from whatever they thought or heard about God. But when the law comes and it says, do not do this, now you know you're not supposed to. There's a phrase that people say, they say this phrase, don't ask for permission, just ask for forgiveness. And and that phrase gets at the point. If you ask for permission and you're told no and you do it, you're going against the law. But if you don't ask and you don't know that you can't do it and you do it and it's wrong, then you can just ask for forgiveness. That's kind of the point. Sin came into the world before the law did. But death, because of sin, came with sin. So we see that in Genesis 4. It's all over the place. What makes Adam's sin different from what this passage is saying is that those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression, it just means Adam is the only one who sinned directly talking to God. Like he got his words directly from God. So his sin is uniquely different because you sinned against the word of God directly. Mankind's sin is more against the conscience that God has given them. They know that like this is wrong. So perfect example, Genesis 4, right? Cain's jealous of Abel. And what does God say to him? Why are you jealous? I'm paraphrasing. Don't be jealous. That jealousy, sin, he called it sin. Sin is crouching at your door. If you're jealous, you're going to act on that jealousy and you're going to sin against your brother. And he did. He killed him. Now, there was no law then that said do not kill like it did when Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments came. But he knew that it was wrong to kill his brother. Right? There's conscience. See, even before you know the law, you know conscience. You know that this is wrong. So Adam's sin was directly against law. As a matter of fact, Adam's sin was sort of against the law because God gave him, gave him a... It was for, babe, don't bite, eat from this tree. But mankind's sin is more against the conscience or the cosmic understanding of God through creation. Remember that Romans 2 that takes us back to that Romans 2 passage. Remember that? In Romans 2, verse 14, it says this. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their thoughts, their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. This is what God is saying. When he breathed the breath of life, being made in God's image means whether you're a Christian or not, You understand right and wrong. You understand justice. You understand mercy. You understand forgiveness. Do you know, without being a Christian, you don't even got to be a Christian. There is not one person alive right now who's old enough to understand what's happening in the world that has not had to forgive people for sinning against them. Every child has to forgive their parents before they even know what sin is. 
There is not a person alive that has never forgiven anyone. It's impossible. Now, there are people who are bitter and at a certain point refuse to offer that forgiveness or that mercy. But for the most part, we all do it. Why do kids, when you take something from them, say, that's not fair? They don't, they, did they go to law school at age three? No, they understand that that's not fair. There's something in them that they understand this is wrong. So what do they do? They fight each other. Remember, I was babysitting. I used to call, his, he was my, I used to call him my little cousin. That's all black people say people are their cousins. And he wasn't, though. But I used to babysit his name was Theo. I was babysitting him and his other kid, and I was watching them play. And I was a kid myself. I was maybe 11, and they was like two and three. So technically, I was an adult to them. I was watching them, and they got into a fight over this car. And this little kid that was more like I was more, had more relationship with his mom, he picked up the car because they were fighting over playing with it. He picked it up, and he was like two, and he stumbled into the dude and hit him right in his mouth. For two years old, it was a good shot. And I remember telling my mom what happened, but I was actually impressed by it, sadly. Because it was like, man, he stumbled. He couldn't even walk right, but his aim was perfect. Crow! Hit him right in his tooth. And his tooth started to bleed a little bit. And I had to tell their moms what happened. Why did he do that? Because he knew instinctively that you taking this car from me is wrong. And I want justice. I want vengeance. We're going to right this wrong by you losing one of your teeth. This is how God created humanity. So even if you don't hear the gospel, you can still be judged based upon your keeping your own conscience. And you know what? No one keeps their conscience perfectly. So even that law, we failed. That's why we need Jesus, because we can't even keep our own conscience. How many people make New Year's resolutions and break them within two weeks? Well, this is saying it's like, look, sin came into the, was in the world before there was no law, but no one sinned in the likeness of Adam's transgression. It says this, sin is not counted before the law was given, but we see God punishing humanity for sinning. I mean, you look at Genesis 6, 5 and 6, and it says, as the Lord says, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. This word, these two words, every inclination, those are not just speaking to the action of sin, but the motive. God's looking at the motive of mankind saying, wow, all of their motives are just to do evil all the time. This is why identity matters. Because of the sin that we got from Adam and Eve, which was to, we decide what's right and wrong on our own, our motives, our inclinations are evil. So even in a sexual relationship outside of the way God defined it, it's no question that these two people actually love each other, but their motive is evil. Their inclination because they do it apart from the way God said it should be done. So God sees it. So this is what I'm trying to say. Motive also matters. It's not just our actions. God searches our motive. This is why Jesus said, I always do what pleases the Father. I desire to do the Father's will. Jesus said, my motive, not just my actions, but my every motive is to glorify God in every moment. And none of us can say that. None of us can say that. And that has to be said to be declared righteous before God. So it's not just the actions that you do, but the reason why you do those actions. Listen, there are a lot of people who are not Christians that don't cheat on their taxes and, and don't steal and have good relationships with their kids and aren't addicted to drugs. And cool. It's possible to do good works in the sense that you're not trying to do evil. 
But we don't do them for the glory of God. That's the motive. Adam was to do it for the glory of God. And when he lost that, all humanity lost the ability to do things for the glory of God. So Jesus came and did everything for the glory of God. And now says, if you believe in me, you will get seen as what you do for the glory of God because my spirit is in you. This is why we are grateful and why we believe in Jesus. Not because we're perfect, but because we know that our imperfections are going to be judged by someone. And by his grace, he's provided Jesus to be the substitute instead of us. We traded places. So Adam's sin was unique in that it was directly against the word of God. But salvation is unique in that the word of God directly came in the flesh to us. And this is what beginning in Romans chapter 15 is about. I mean, verses 15. Here's what it says. 15 to 21, we're going to read. But the gift, meaning salvation, the gift. But the gift is not like the trespass. The trespass meaning Adam sinning against God, disobeying God. So the gift is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespass, Adam, biting of the fruit, many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus, overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin because from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through the one man's trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one man, through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. Huh? I know people, like, what in the world did he just say? Because this is not how we talk. So let me paraphrase it. Let me dumb this down. What God is doing here is comparing the difference between Adam's effect on humanity and Jesus' effect on humanity. That's what's happening. And he's saying they're not the same thing. It's not like, oh, this is the two sides of the same coin. He's saying that salvation, the gift of salvation, forgiveness of sin, is greater than the curse of desolation, the curse of God's judgment. So they're not the two sides of the same coin is what God's trying to say. Said what Jesus did is way more significant than what Adam did. And here's why. This is what the pastor is saying. Here's why. When Adam sinned, listen, for God, from God, when you're perfect like God, any imperfection is, is off. Morally perfect God is. Cannot do evil, has never done evil. Evil can't, he can't even look at the presence of evil. It can't stand in his presence which is fascinating because it says Satan stands in the throne and accuses the brethren. We'll figure that out or God will show us at one point. But God is morally perfect. Once Adam bit that fruit, he was no longer perfect morally. And therefore, once you've gone against the moral perfection of God, the moral law of God, God can judge you, he can punish you for that. Technically, he, you should go to hell. One sin, one sin. In fact, James actually says, and I'm going to explain this in a moment. James says if you sin once, you sin against all of the Ten Commandments. You broke the whole law. They're all so connected that once you break one of them, you've broken all of them. Because if you covet your neighbor's wife, then how can you love your neighbor as yourself or love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Right? How, you break them all. So what the passage is saying is that what Adam did one sin brought sin into the world. But by the time Jesus came, think of how many sins were in the world. See, Adam's judgment happened as one sin. But what Christ redeemed, let me do a mathematical equation to help this make sense. All right, if I sin three times a day, just three times a day, if I sin three times a day, that's 1,095 sins per year. Multiply that by my age, I'm not telling you. It means I've committed 50,370 sins in my lifetime. All right. 
Now, if we take into account that James said, if you break one sin, you've broken them all. So each time I sin those three times, that's actually 10 times. So now it's 30 sins a day that I've committed, which come to 10,950 sins, multiplied by my age, becomes 514,650 sins so far in my life. Now, God says if you sin once, you're worthy of hell. Just one time. Because the standard is perfection. So I got, at the very least, 514,000 sins credited to my account. Adam, who was 930 years old when he died, had 10,183,500 sins credited to his account. And only one of them could send him to hell. Now think about that for a second. When God told Abraham that the stars in the sky represent the people that are his descendants in Genesis 15, and he said, look up at the sky. If you can count how many, that's how many your descendants will be. Well, every one of those descendants have multiple sins against them. I mean, it is unfathomable to think if 930 years of living, just by my mathematic equation, produces 10,183,500 sins, that's just, that's just Adam. Think of all the people who have lived in the world. There's not a mathematic equation. That's, that's math that only God knows. And so the point is this. When Adam sinned, only one sin happened. Sin came into the world and would affect the world, but only once it happened. By the time Jesus came, innumerable amounts of sin had occurred already. So his act of dying on the cross for the forgiveness of all that sin was way different, way more serious, way more dramatic than Adam's one sin that brought sin into the world because no one had sinned yet until they were born. By the time Jesus came, Gazillions of people had come and gone, and gazillions of people more would come and go, and their sins are all covered. So it's not the same thing. The gift of salvation is greater than the trespass against it, because what Jesus atoned for, why he took sin from people, wasn't one sin like Adam's. It was hundreds of thousands and millions for each individual. Do the math for yourself. And my logic is, uh, there's no way I sin just three times, times 10. There's no way. That was just to help us understand the reality. Then you add the law coming in, right? So the law eventually comes, verse 20. The law came along to multiply the trespass. So once God says, okay, you're not allowed to do this. Here are the Ten Commandments. Don't do these. Now, every time you do them, you know you're breaking the law. So when the law comes, now everyone is cognizant of it. I know that I'm doing this wrong. You know, when your kids are little, they don't know any better. But then when you tell them, no, 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 don't do that. No. My cat, my cat is a funny dude. He's four months old, and he's starting to get it. We, he knows you can't go on the table. And every once in a while, he will go against the grain and climb on the table. And for whatever reason, if I say to him, I call him little one. So his name is Murky. I call him Merk or little one. But if I say little one, no, no, he'll give me that sad look and he'll get right down. Or if I see him coming up, you know, he tries to play it off. I see him. He's looking around like, little one, no, no. He'll go right down. He knows. Because he knows now not to do that. So when he does do that, but there was a point where we didn't say don't go on the table. But now that he knows it goes on the table, he knows and he even feels bad about it. He makes his face as he's looking down. When the Ten Commandments came, now you know what not to do. So when you do them, it just multiplies the sins that you're aware of because now the parameters are clear. 
if we should go to hell because of one sin, then the grace of God is amazing because if I should burn in hell for just one sin, then I'm a couple hundred thousand at best worthy of that. And Jesus says, I'm going to trade places with you, bro. I'm going to take your punishment on the cross and I'm going to rise from the dead to prove that the punishment that I received was sufficient from God. No one else brought Jesus back from the dead but himself. That proved that his death was not one because of sin. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you could say, hey, listen, God told Adam that when you sin, death is going to happen. So the fact that Jesus died means that he sinned just because we can't figure it out. But the fact that he rose from the dead on his own proves that there wasn't, he didn't die because he sinned. He died because everyone else did. And his coming back in the resurrection is proof. So that's why we trust him. That's why we believe in him. This is why grace is actually amazing. Because we're all guilty of many sins. And we all have, we were all the offspring of the serpent. Until Jesus comes and says, now our identities change from sinners to saints. To co-heirs. To children. To priests to sons and daughters, to beloved, to saints, to loved by God. All that language is important. This is why we fight for that. This is why we, we stress identity because all of that language is all identity driven because one of the foundational reasons why Jesus come was to restore the identity that was lost in the garden. This language is all over the New Testament. Even the words one another is identity. It's speaking to Christians who are united together in Jesus Christ. They're united with one another. The church is an identity. Christian is an identity. This is just, this is more about who we are than what we do. But who we are should inform what we do. This is why throughout the rest of Romans, you're going to hear identity language. As a matter of fact, now that you know this, watch how often you see it when you read. It's everywhere because your identity matters. Hashtag identity matters. It matters for the bad and the good because if you got the wrong identity, When I got the news that Kathy had passed away, I shouldn't have said that. Dumb move. I had two thoughts. The first was, I'm glad her suffering is over. And the second was, I'm glad she's with the Lord. Because I knew her identity was in Christ. So even though I grieve, different because I'm also happy for her. Identity matters because if someone's not a believer then my grieving is different and my tears are not tears of joy 
Verse 20, the law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. The law comes and demonstrates how sinful we are. And Jesus comes to demonstrate we're not going to be punished for that sin. And why the grace multiplies even more is because Jesus didn't come and stop us from sinning. In other words, we're going to sin against him even after we believe in him. So it wasn't he stopped our sin from the moment we had faith in him. He says, you're not going to be held accountable for your sin. Not saying you can sin and not, I guess, what, no, 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 that's not what you do when you believe in Jesus. But when we fail, so there's a fight and fail, not a we don't fight. That's not what grace is. Grace isn't you don't fight and try to resist sin. Grace is you fight and when you fail, you're forgiven. Grace is not don't fight and God doesn't care because you're forgiven. That's not how it works. And that's Romans chapter 6. And we'll pick up there next week. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we know that we are, as your word says, we are saints loved by you. We have traded places with you where we were unrighteous and then you were righteous and you traded places. So you got punished for our unrighteousness and you put us on the team so that we share in your inheritance for being righteous. You are our Michael Jordan, if you will. We thank you that identity is fundamental to who we are and that everything about identity matters and that one of the main themes of your word, one of the main themes of your word is to restore the identity that was lost. And the beautiful thing about this, even your identity changed some, as the word tells us. You became something. Your identity even changed because you agreed to become the lamb who was slain. Father, may we be motivated by this new identity in Christ. And may that shape us to resist sin, not make excuses for it, like we'll talk about in two weeks in Romans 6. but that we resisted. And when we fail, we fight and we fail and we're forgiven. But Lord, may we fight and not fail. Find victory as well for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.